Hi, friends. You're listening to Midlife Plot Twists. I'm your host, Lucy Baber. This podcast is for anyone who's gotten to their 30s, 40s, or 50s and realized life isn't always as linear as we expected. Tune in monthly as I interview guests about their own midlife plot twists and hear how they've navigated all of life's unexpected twists and turns. Hey, everybody. It's Lucy Baber, and I am here today with a friend of mine who I actually know from my book club. This is Emily Zilber here with me today. And um, Emily has gone through some really exciting and sometimes nerve-wracking life changes over the past few years. And I've had a chance to watch her grow and watch her learn all of these important lessons about herself over that time. And today I just wanted to ask her some questions about what that's looked like and see if we can maybe help some people get some more clarity on their lives at this phase of life. So Emily, I said next to nothing about you, but uh, (laughs) can you please tell us about yourself? Include whatever information you want, but uh, particularly in reference to the past couple of years, like I just mentioned, and also your professional career, because I think that's really helpful and relevant. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks, Lucy, for having me with you today. Um, It feels really fitting, considering that my 40th birthday was just a couple of weeks ago. So I am, that feels like squarely, squarely midlife. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so so I am becoming much more comfortable with uh, being more than one thing as I go into middle age. So Mm. Um, maybe I can talk about it this way, you know, professionally, I spent most of my like life and career working in museums, working as an educator and a curator. And I also teach um, uh, mostly BFA and MFA students in art history and curatorial practice. I work in museums now. Uh, In addition to that, (laughs) I have started a business in the last couple of years that that offers coaching and consulting to um, creatives and culture workers through a strengths-based and neurodiversity affirming lens. And, you know, one of the reasons that that's really important to me is because I like to say, because it was 2019, it was like pre-pandemic before everyone got one, um, before everyone got one. But I was diagnosed in my late 30s with ADHD. And that was a real shift for how I understood myself, for what I understood ADHD to look like, generally speaking, and, and certainly in my own life, for the, the outlook that it gave me. And so, you know, in the wake of that, one of the many things I did was benefit from neurodiversity-informed coaching and decided to pursue training in that area. Um, And so I work with clients, um, largely creative people, although not exclusively, and certainly, um, you know, self-defined. So creativity is anything from, you know, (laughs) somebody who makes their living in a creative field to somebody who just, uh, yeah, feels like that really defines who they are in in their life in a non-professional way to do uh, ADHD coaching with with them. So that's sort of some of the picture. And then I'm also a mom. <laughs> I have identical five-year-old twin daughters who are also neurodivergent. And so um, a big part of the last couple of years, in addition to integrating and really understanding who I am in the wake of my own diagnosis, how that has to reframe how I look at myself and my interests and my capacity and how I move through the world. Um, that's also really informed the way that I parent and support my, my kids and try to build a world in which they can have access to the resources and supports that they need and also be who they are um, and feel good in that. So that might be very <laughs> unwieldy, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, that's the, that's the broad, that's the broad scope. <laughs> I also make stuff. I'm also an, a, you know, an artist and a practitioner myself. So those are probably the three important pieces. I love it. And I like, let's be real as somebody who has come to you several times and said, <laughs> do I probably have ADHD? Yes. <laughs> a- 
am I still hanging out in the undiagnosed crowd? Also, yes. Uh, but the term unwieldy is not an unfamiliar word <laughs> no. uh, amongst this crowd, right? Like it does tend to feel like it's just a constant juggling act. And you can speak to this better than I can, but part of that is because of the amount of mental effort it takes to multitask. But then the other piece is creative people with attention issues are also drawn to all the things. We love everything. It's true. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I think that's, that's where, um, you know, for, for, for folks who are listening and don't know what ADHD stands for, it's attention okay. deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I think it's a really unfortunate misnomer um, because ADHD is anything but a deficit of attention, right? Um, we have so much attention. We, we love to look at everything and think about everything and focus on everything. Um, the, the sort of more accurate way to think about it is as, um, you know, people who have interest-driven brains, right? So mm. we can't always control where our attention goes. That's the challenge rather than, um, you know, not having enough of it, right? I think that 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 idea of a deficit really connects to, um, you know, the external presentation, right? Like we think of somebody who can't pay attention to the thing they're supposed to be paying attention to. So in that way, it's a deficit. And the reality is, no, this person has tons of attention. They just can't do what the rest of us or do what the rest of society sort of wants them to do, which is to direct it to the thing that is important at the moment where it's very difficult to do so, right? So um, it's, it's one reason why people who are, um, you know, and I, and I have to say, I sort of identify increasingly as neurodivergent rather than specifically as somebody with ADHD. I think those boundaries are really porous. And um, while I find a lot that, um, that's my formal diagnosis, while I find a lot of value in it, you know, even I find even more value in the idea that I have a brain that just doesn't work like a lot of people <laughs> in our society. But a lot of neurodivergent folks really care passionately and deeply about things, have these brains that can go deep into hyperfocus, can really get excited about something, and have a really hard time showing up in the places that they need to show up in where that level of interest isn't there. And unfortunately, that's a lot of the places we have to be as people who need to live and operate in a world that's not designed for us. I mean, it also means that that neurodivergent folks, you know, often have really high levels of things like creativity and resilience and empathy and and they're able to make connections between things that other people can't because they don't have you know stuff like executive function always getting in the way of creative thinking um so as with everything there's you know there's a great there's great stuff to it there's stuff that's really hard to it you know for me it, it's harder the more i'm in environments that don't allow me to lean on my strengths and design success on my terms mm -hmm. uh and so a lot of a lot of you know what i've been doing since i have yeah, gotten my diagnosis and really integrated what this means for me is to ask questions about how I can move closer to that. How can I take the strengths that I have, the things that I'm really naturally good at that come easily to me that I'm interested in naturally? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of which is, <laughs> is really supporting people and helping them figure out how to get from one place to another, whether it's in a creative um, endeavor or, or, you know, in something life related. I loved doing that working in museums when I, when I would help artists sort of realize big projects and, and how can I do less of the stuff that, yeah, really, really depletes me, really yeah. depletes me and may never come easily for me, may never feel right to me. How can I take that and put it more at the margins of my life than at the center? That's so huge. I feel like you gave me a lot to mine there. <laughs> but then this is also, I'm also like a verbal processor, which means 
which many people with ADHD are. So, um, you know, you just, you just tell me if you need a sentence that's not like 15, <laughs> 15 commas and run-ons and parentheses. And <laughs> no, I mean, I wouldn't dare because everything you just said is so rich and I, yeah, I just love hearing you talk about this. So let's, we're going to focus in on like one piece for just a second and sure. then, um, come back around to your personal experience, but having been trained in this coaching, mm-hmm. um, I would, I would consider you, you more of an expert than I am at least. And I guess my question is one, I have two questions. One does neurotypical even exist anymore, <laughs> but also two, is this like a, is this still an individual brain issue or is this more at this point a society issue like a societal expectations hasn't caught up with what our bodies and brains have evolved into these are really really big questions and i'm going to be totally unsatisfying and um you know i think there's a lot of people and we can we can sort of dig up some resources to point folks to um who really question right does neurotypical exist in a society where you don't have neurodivergent right if we're not sort of interested in othering people <laughs> then then what good is typical if we're not interested in sort of stratifying things uh so that we can create you know an ideal kind of person or brain or human then then none of this exists right so i really am um, a big champion of sort of neurodiversity affirming frameworks, which, you know, really think about neurodiversity in the same breath as something like biodiversity, right? We are a richer, you know, planet <laughs> for having many different kinds of species of, of plants and animals sort of all work together to, to make this kind of like rich tapestry. And if we apply the same thing to the way that people's brains work, right? What if, what if that's the model rather than neurotypical neurodivergent? What if we're in a, a world that's sort of neurodiversity affirming where, you know, people are lauded and celebrated for what their brains and, and minds have to offer? You know, that doesn't, it's, it's very hard not to take this into a place where you're just ranting about capitalism all day, (laughs) (laughs) but there's lots of people who are far smarter than I am and more researched in this area who, you know, make these arguments that while accounts of, of people with ADHD go a long way back, it's really like in places like, um, or in, in, in sort of societal changes, like the industrial revolution, where things get mechanized and systematized, mm-hmm. that um, it becomes a disorder, rather than just the way that somebody's brain works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, the capitalism rant is one that I <laughs> go off on daily. So <laughs> I, I feel that. And I guess I, I would be curious to know, I'm sure that there's research out there actually comparing societal structures and and what does happen to the people whose gifts are not, I don't know, hunting and gathering in a tribal society or, you know, like how does that play out in other uh, structures of society and that is a question that we're not going to answer today, but no, I know we can, um, we can, yeah. we can like point to some resources, but I think, I think what you're getting at is what happens to people who aren't sort of, I'm making big air quotes here, optim- optimally functional yeah. in, in societies that are more based on collectivism and mutual care rather than individualism. This is why you've got that lovely coach <laughs> certification. <laughs> And I do not. I just, that's beautifully, that's so beautifully put. And it is exactly what we're getting at is, yeah, I, I just love all the language you're using. Okay. So let's, let's bring it back to your personal experience. Sure. So I'm going to take a shot in the dark. Well, it's not completely in the dark because I was there, but I'm going to guess that you got this diagnosis when you were 38. I was either 37 or 38. 30, um, yeah, 37. yeah, late, late 30s. Okay. And um, so you're, you're living this life in the art history world and, you know, thriving 
on the outside within that space. And what, what was your experience like uh, in hindsight, what was your experience like living with this undiagnosed piece of yourself? And then how has that changed since? Yeah, so um, yeah, I, you know, I had some, some real career success um, at a very young age um, in the museum world have had the chance to do like really amazing big things and at the same time you know had this parallel track where um you know since my teens have struggled with significant mental health stuff you know anxiety and depression and disordered eating and all sorts of of sort of ways that we try to yeah solve some really deep deep wounds so you know i did a lot of managing my life was very very focused on managing and really paying a lot of attention to trying to fix myself um, so that I could show up in these frameworks that drained me, never felt super satisfying to me, and were really exciting to other people. <laughs> you know, were really impressive to other people, garnered me external praise that, that um, you know, so I would struggle in, in those circumstances. I would wonder why I couldn't do things in the way that I saw other people doing things. I would get it done because um, I am <laughs> nothing if not aggressively competent once I get urgency in the picture, which is <laughs> very much in alignment with um, um, my neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. And you know the, the external presentation, the, the sort of mask that I would show to, to folks wouldn't, wouldn't let people in on a lot of that. And so, you know, I really thought I was just like a person who struggled with depression mm. <laughs> and really bad anxiety for, for most of my life. And, and I was not in a great place when, when I got my diagnosis, we had, we had made the, I had made the decision to leave a, a sort of big job mm -hmm. um, to relocate to Philadelphia, which is where, where I grew up, where I'm from, and it's close to where my family is and my husband's family. And we wanted our daughters to be closer to them. And, you know, we're moving from a wildly expensive city <laughs> to a city that's a lot more reasonable. And I was really struggling to sort of figure out um, professionally who I was and who I wanted to be, having left this job that I'd had for almost a decade that had really come to define me and also had thoroughly burned me out and done a lot of damage to my sense of self and to my sense of, you know, what was, what was possible for me, what I was actually good at. And so, you know, I was in the middle of this really challenging period and in a conversation with, you know, my psychiatrist, because we were just trying to figure out like, why is, why are things not working? Why is this not going the way we, we thought it would? Had a conversation with her where um, I mentioned the sort of relentless nature of my thoughts, which I'd always, you know, thought about in the context of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And in our conversation about it, it came up that there's a family history of ADHD hmm. uh, in my family. And she said, oh, okay, <laughs> let's investigate this. Yeah. Um, you know, and I had never really assumed that it was applicable to me because, you know, prior to my own diagnosis, my understanding of ADHD was very much in alignment with the sort of typical um, uh, understanding that many people have, which is based on studies that have been done on a presentation as it exists in you know largely like young white boys mm -hmm. who can't sit still and all of the hyperactivity is external and i didn't realize that there were facets of adhd uh, where the hyperactivity the sort of relentlessness is is internally directed so things like um, relentless repetitive thoughts can be a, a sign of, of ADHD that, you know, is, is sort of classified in, in medical terms as, as inattentive ADHD rather than hyperactive. And mm -hmm. so there's inattentive type, hyperactive type, and combined type. And so I was seeing a lot of external presentations that didn't, didn't reflect sort of like what my 
experience of being in the world as somebody who like often had low energy and often, you know, really took a long time to recover from having to be out and perform sort of mm. myself in front of people. And so, you know, so much of what was really revelatory for me after my diagnosis was looking at things that previously I had thought about as um, like sort of symptoms or presentations of depression and anxiety and being able to see so many of them as being related to to my ADHD, to my neurodivergence, to the masking, right, that I had done while managing like my work self, my social self, um, what I needed to do to be in relationship with other people. And, and, you know, doing it all while not having a whole lot of compassion for myself, because I really didn't understand, you know, like why I couldn't make the changes in my life I wanted to make. Um, Having a better sense of that through this diagnosis has been really liberating for me, right? Um, And it's not for like lack of trying. I've done, you know, like mindful self-compassion training and (laughs) all sorts of things. Um, But if you're not really aware of the, of the, the sort of reality of the situation you're working with, that stuff can only go so far. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I did another info dump on you <laughs> in response no, to your no, question, no. but I hope, I hope that sort of answered some of what you were, were asking about. Absolutely. It really did. And I think hearing your experience is so, hopefully will be helpful to lots of people. I feel like I've heard you talk about this a couple of times and each time I'm, it like hits me over the head, like, oh yeah, that is truth right there. Like (laughs) I get it. I can see it in not only myself, but people around me. And it's fascinating. I don't, I don't know that I've mentioned this a lot on the podcast, but Mm -hmm. um, you probably know that my background professionally before photography was as a mental health therapist. Yeah. And I remember coming up within that field kind of as these diagnoses were still really being defined. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly it started before the mid 2000s and certainly it has evolved since I left the field in uh, 2012. But as I was learning about it, I remember in the DSM-5, <laughs> that was right. That was the one that was out. <laughs> um, I remember there was Two, there were two different diagnoses. There was mm-hmm. ADD and ADHD. Yes. And that was kind of how we understood things at the time was, well, there are the people who just can't focus. And then there are the kids. And I specialized in, in child therapy. There are the kids who literally like fall out of a chair as you're talking to them for no reason. Yeah. Um, and that was my limited understanding, never having been like, you know, a doctor or uh, an expert in that field. I just remember that being kind of the path that we took. And then it seemed like socially, um, because more and more kids were getting diagnosed, it became the general public became more aware. And it, as I was stepping out of the field, it seemed like around that time, uh, socially, we all kind of forgot about the, the inattentive type, the ADD, <laughs> and we all just started diagnosing everyone with ADHD. And uh, it became more of this self-diagnosed kind of like catch-all that didn't really account for all of the overlapping diagnoses and, and underlying issues, you know, like trauma can show up a lot like yeah. ADHD and, and anxiety and, and all these different pieces Um, and so I feel like we've really lost the meaning there and, and lost sight of like, again, it feels like nobody I know is neurotypical because it seems like everyone can diagnose themselves pretty easily at this point. But what, what's unique, I think about the way I hear you speak about it is it doesn't feel like you have come to this understanding so much through that like hyper clinical lens um, where it's just about slapping a label on it and pumping somebody with meds, which is what I've seen most in the like childcare world mm-hmm. over the past couple of decades. Um, the, the type of treatment and, and understanding that you talk about 
really is strengths focused. Um, it's not judgmental. It's, it's capturing this, uh, the, the difference in, you know, gender, um, presentation. And I, I honestly, when I hear you talk about this, I just think about all of the good little straight A student girls that I grew up with <laughs> and how much anxiety we all had, uh, trying to keep up with that level of performance uh, through young adulthood, through motherhood and, and how many people who would have benefited from understanding this feels hard to you for a reason. And there are resources that can help and you don't have to feel shameful or like guilty about that. You don't have to hide it. And you, it's, I mean, like socially we say it's okay to ask for help, but when it comes down to it, people are really, really bad at that. And the more high achieving, I think you are, the more you forget that that's okay. But this really is like a big moment of needing to ask for help as a, as an adult. And how has that been for you? And what, tell me about some of the resources that have been helpful for you. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, absolutely hear everything you're you're saying i think it's all of those all of those girls who like stared out the window because they were so you know just like in their own worlds right um they weren't disruptive and so often it's like the external when when something like this causes a problem for other people that's when it gets treated mm. um and when it doesn't cause a problem for anyone but you and that problem is all internal well yeah. you know that's that's on you. It's your responsibility to fix it or to tame it or to, to, to sort of figure out how to manage it. And that, um, yeah, again, it's just like toxic individualism, <laughs> um, you know, because then we also assume we're the only ones, right? Like I found getting my diagnosis and sort of being in community with other people who had either received diagnosis as children. And like, honestly, there wasn't the research at that point, there wasn't the level of understanding, even with a diagnosis, they didn't get the supports they needed or the acceptance they needed because it, it, the information wasn't there. Or people who are working to integrate diagnoses in, in, in midlife or, or honestly in late life. I know some folks, um, you know, through this peer community, coaching community that I'm a part of, um, that's been a, a real, um, gosh, a real beacon for me you know, where there's women who are coming in, getting diagnosed at like 65, 70, 75, sort of wondering, oh my God, okay, well, like, what can I do with the time I have left to reshape all of the stuff yeah. that I've understood through this, you know, this skewed lens, right? So yeah, I think, I think honestly, the, the best resource that I found is, is the resource of sort of like being with other people and hearing their stories. I find that really, really powerful. I find, uh, you know, as much sort of as many opportunities as I can find to be in a place where you are met with empathy, where you're met with understanding, where you're able to like say something that you feel a lot of shame about and have people sort of either look back to you and say, no, it's fine. Or yeah, no, me too. Like there's a real, <laughs> there's a real power in that. And certainly during the first like six months after my diagnosis, when frankly, like I was just angry. <laughs> I was angry. It wasn't caught earlier. I was angry that, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, things that like could have been seen as signs along the way weren't put together. I was angry at people who uh, saw me make choices where I really compromised myself and, and a you know, like allowed me to do that. Although that's totally unfair to them because how would they know that I was compromising myself? Mm -hmm. But it took me a while. It took me, it took me some time to get into a place where it was like, well, no, this has to be an opportunity to know yourself better, to, mm -hmm. to sort of get informed, to seek out resources, whether it is through coaching or um, peer support groups or books. And there are some really, really wonderful books out there that have, have, meant a lot to me, you know, especially books by, by Catherine May. She's not um, diagnosed with ADHD, but she is autistic and writes really beautifully and eloquently about around um, what it's felt like to receive that diagnosis in midlife. And she is, she's also, you know, was a, was a writing professor before she got the diagnosis. So there's this beautiful, beautiful um, ways of thinking and talking about 
about this. And then, you know, to, to really make choices that feel um, intentional, right? I think I made a lot of choices in my life based on um, what other people thought of me rather than what I thought of myself, what other people's priorities were for me rather than my priorities for myself because they either felt like they didn't matter or I couldn't figure out what they were or, mm. you know, things that I felt like were priorities for me, things that I loved, I had a really hard time sustaining. Mm. Once I got out of circumstances where I had a lot of structure to help me sustain them. And so this is like, you know, a fairly common <laughs> for, for um, women who receive midlife diagnoses is that, you know, they manage while yeah. their children and while their parents are essentially doing that external executive function work for them, right? Mm. By saying, you need to be here now. You need to go there then. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the things you're going to do. And then they make a transition out of that. And, and that's where the struggle really can start. Um, and, you know, and for me, it was like making a decision based on what I thought would get me the most external approval not to go to art school mm. um, when that was something that really mattered to me was really important to me and then being in a, a sort of really academic rigorous university setting and struggling to um, maintain uh, a sort of artistic life mm. and having coming to that with the baggage of a lot of people saying you know go get a good college education if you want to be an artist, you'll do it because that's what artists do. When in reality, it's like, no, I actually need a lot of infrastructure. I need a lot of support. I need a lot of um, uh, accountability in mm. order to do this thing that I love. This is that, like, let's give that a moment because yeah. that is, I think, the crux of like so many parts of life. I know, you know, there's, there's like all the, the memes that are popular and, mm -hmm. and I feel like I see a lot of memes, maybe this is the algorithm aimed at me, <laughs> but, uh, I see a lot of memes about like that friend who can't text back for months. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, that person who just can't seem to do, uh, there's another meme that's like, no person has all five. And it's like all of these like very basic, uh, expectations of adulting, you know, like self-care, eating right, exercising, showing up for work every day, managing family and romantic relationships. And it's like, again, this kind of like, is it that society has set us up for failure or is, I think it's the answer is it's yes. And, um, <laughs> the fact that like those very basic tasks can't only be motivated by desire desire is like a really unwieldy thing mm -hmm. right uh, it, it's not this it's not this automatic sort of thing you desire then you want to do right mm -hmm. like in some ways in some ways i'm gonna like paraphrase from um one of the the people i've i've trained with um who is a really wonderful adhd coach right but like the fundamental question of adhd is why don't i do the things that i know or want to do and it's questions around motivation it's questions like there are all of these pieces to it um and really like the cultural narrative again we're like back to individualism right the cultural narrative around desire and wanting to do something is you want to do it you do it mm -hmm. And that is, gosh, just not realistic for so many people, whether it's virgin or not, right? So, yeah. um, you know, then you make choices for your life based on it. For me, it was, well, I guess I don't really like making art that much anyway. Ugh. You know, and so now, post-diagnosis, I found my way back to it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I also spent, you know, the majority of my career working to support the creativity of other people without um, really giving my own space, right? And that's, and that's a real, that's a disservice I did myself. Yeah, it's that damn capitalism. I, under, I understand why, I understand yeah. why it happened, right? Yeah. Like I, I'm not angry with myself for doing it. I did the best I could with the information I had at the time. We almost all do. Mm -hmm. But then what do you do when... Yeah you have new information. How do you figure out um, 
within the structures that we're in, right? Like as much as I would love, and I think this is true with, with the clients that I coach, you know, it's like, yes, we would love to design something specifically for you where we can know that everything will be safe and secure and you will never want for anything. And uh, this is, you don't have to operate in the world that we live in. Um, as much as we would want that, like how can we make the world that you're existing in and what you actually need for yourself, like how can we get those things closer? Um, and that's really like what I've been working to do for myself for the last couple of years. And it's what I work to do for, for my daughters who, you know, I'm thrilled that they will have access to different kinds of resources, different kinds of information. Um, I'm sure things will shift and change, but uh, you know, these are kids who are going to grow up, you know, under a different paradigm, a different framework than, than either you or I did. Exactly. And that, I think that hits on something that we were uh, talking about prior to hitting record, but it also, I don't know, as I'm hearing you talk, I keep kind of like turning this over in my head. It really is not only, you know, like capitalism and uh, societal expectations, but it's also, I feel like it, this process of like, not only just what you've experienced the past couple of years mm -hmm. in your diagnosis, but just in general, time and time again with people I'm interviewing for this podcast, people I talk to who are in this phase of life, it's an unlearning of all of the, the expectations around what this phase should look like from generations past. Yeah. And in addition to that, I feel like our grandparents and our parents were we're so hyper-focused on you work, you, you show up, you do the work and life will reward you. And somewhere by the time that you and I were coming up as kids, like maybe it shifted in the seventies and really bled down to us in the eighties. Uh, we started getting these messages. Maybe it was also Disney. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we started getting these messages that like, paying the bills is less important than following your passion. Mm. And so now we've got these two polarized perspectives. One is that, but you still have to pay the bills. And, uh, and the expectation is from the older generations that like, if you start, uh, I mean, in my family, it was, it was my uncle who started as a bagging boy at the grocery store and then mm. worked his way up to regional manager of the whole grocery store chain. And that was, you know, that bootstraps mentality, you show up, you do the work and life will reward you. Um, but also, and so that was expectation. Number one is that like your career should be linear. It should always follow this like trajectory of moving up. And, um, there's no real space for change in personality or uh, greater, deeper understanding of your strengths and, and, and I don't want to use the word passions, but but what, what your potential could be. Mm -hmm. um, but then on the other side, it is, but also your life isn't rich if you're not pursuing your passions and just showing up for the work isn't uh, satisfying enough and you don't want to end up on your deathbed with all these creative regrets. And so it really has kind of put us in this, this pickle <laughs> because uh, there's, there's no winning really. And you, there. I feel like, again, society has set us up for just constantly feeling guilty about one side or the other or both. And then when you add this new insight into your, into the mix, which is also all of the things I thought I knew about myself up until this point, um, now have this additional lens put on top of it. And maybe I could have made things easier or more personally satisfying if I had understood this about myself sooner like what are we left with what where do we take this and 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 I guess that is that is the bigger question that we won't answer today but um taking that question I will translate that to what you and I could talk about which is what resources are there where where yeah. where is the hope what do you offer within your coaching how um does this peer space support people? How can people get, get over this hump? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think in some ways, like the the hump is not the right <laughs> metaphor because because it's all this is the rest. I mean, this is the rest of our lives, right? Is figuring out as we change what our lives need to look like. And you're right that 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 sort of um, takes a diversion from you know this really like linear you know you're just working towards an end trajectory i think you know in in my um in my in my family um despite the fact that that neither of my parents ever had you know like one job that sustained them forever both of them had stints as entrepreneurs <laughs> both of them had had real challenges um but there was this message of you know do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life which is i think you know, in many ways, just as damaging as put your nose to the to the grindstone and do, and and you'll get rewarded for something. I think that that viewing this and reframing it not as something that comes to an end, something that isn't a hump that you can get over, but instead this perpetual, ongoing um, uh, sort of cycle of like self-examination. And, and not in a way where that becomes a burden, but instead mm. like, okay, I get to check in with myself. Mm. What does checking in with myself look like? What supports do I need when I check in with myself? And when I learn something new, when I have a greater sense of what's working and what's not working, uh, what do I do with that, right? In, in the sort of coaching process, you know, there's this action awareness learning cycle where you do the action, right? You, you, you pick something that you're going to try. You come back to coaching, you sort of build awareness through talking about how it went, what you did. Um, and then from that, you, you learn something that you put into the next action. So we're never talking about like, okay, I'm going to get over the hump and then I'm going to be arrived. I'm going to be here. I'm going to, I'm going to like the myth of arrival has been such a damaging myth in my own life. Yeah. And instead thinking about it as this action awareness, learning constant cycle, you know, you know, what, whatever you can do so that that doesn't become um, overwhelming or burdensome, but instead like is a dance that you get to do with yourself. Um, mm and figuring out how to shape it in that way through the supports that you give yourself, whether that's a coach, whether it's a really good friend or two, whether it is, you know, keeping it in a distinct time, right? Like deciding, okay, I'm going to do, like, I, this is what I do <laughs> is, is um, you know, I do um, check-ins every six months with myself where I talk about I, I list out the sort of highs and the lows of the last six months. This is my own personal practice, right? It, I'm not saying it's the best one. It's just one that I found that works for me. Mm -hmm. I list out the highs and the lows of the past six months. And then um, from those highs and lows, I look at the common threads between them, right? Were my highs all about community? Were they about leaning into creativity? Were they about, uh, you know, really like, giving myself some slack and taking the pressure off mm -hmm. um, were my lows about striving were my lows about negative self-talk were my lows about um, wishing things were different than they are and then and I really like try to try to use that to think about okay like what worked what didn't what do I do with this knowledge how do I shift things you know and, and a regular check-in can look all sorts of different ways it looks differently for clients that I work with. It looks differently for artists that I work with. But having that understanding that like, this is something you're going to do because it's a gift you're giving yourself, right? That gift of like knowing what you need. Mm -hmm. um, that reframe has been really helpful to me as opposed to, you know, what I was doing for most of my life, which was, okay, I have to get to know myself really well so that I can fix my anxiety. I can fix my uh -huh. depression, right? Yeah, that I mean, that's so huge on so many levels. I mean, even if even if somebody listening does not identify as having these specific concerns or relates to, you know, the the, the um, traits of mm -hmm. neurodivergence in any way, I love that it it's time limited, right? So like you can you can give yourself a little bit of 
permission to play and experiment, try on. It's like trying on a new outfit and mm -hmm. like try go wearing it out once and saying like, did that feel good? Do I like this new style? Is this yeah. me? Or, you know, like, but also I'm not married to it. I can, I can reevaluate. I can decide that um, that specific combination of things is not the right thing for me right in this moment. Yep. Um, but I also love going back to, I'm sure this was intentional, going back to what you talked about earlier, the system of it, the, the, the fact that like, because, you know, a lot of this midlife phase is so independence-based, you have created a structure for yourself that, that systematizes it. It allows you um, structure to, to do that check-in because nobody, nobody at this phase in our lives is doing that all over our shoulder anymore. There's no parent, you know, like tucking us in every night saying, how was your day, sweetie? I mean, for most people <laughs> giving yourself that opportunity um, and that structure for those check-ins, I think is huge. I mean, like, and we, we were also talking about finances earlier. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be honest. I have a lovely CPA who is like the best ever. And I will recommend their services to anybody, any small business owner who needs it in the greater Philadelphia area. They are like the least judgy. They uh, always set me up for success when we sit down and we sit down quarterly to look at my finances <laughs> and the financial health of my business. I don't care how great I'm doing. I <laughs> hate those meetings <laughs> and I dread them yeah. and I drag my feet to them, but I do it because I know that those regular check-ins are essential to the mm -hmm. financial health of my business. And every time I like, I drag my feet into the, the zoom meeting and I'm like, kind of like peeking out between fingers over my eyes and like, how bad is it? And then they, it always, the, my CPA is just always so reassuring, so realistic, but also uh, hopeful. And, and it's just like, well, well, you're just going to make these numbers next and it, it'll be fine. And if you can't make those numbers in this way, then you're going to try this other way. And that I, I recognize that that's what we should be doing in so many different parts of our lives. And that is a structure that I pay somebody else to build for me, but, um, <laughs> but giving yourself permission to do that outside of somebody else imposing it is, I mean, that is like adulting at a level that I haven't even gotten to yet. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, but it's also something that comes from like, um, having worked with coaches and having, mm -hmm tried a lot of different things and and um you know it doesn't mean that I do it always perfectly it doesn't mean <laughs> right but like I know it's there mm -hmm. and I know that it's worked for me once and so I get to try it again and if some you know I'm doing a check-in and it like does not work for me for one for some reason you know like I get to say okay like what wasn't working about doing the check-in this way this time and I wonder what other resources are out there mm. who could I ask for other ways that they check in with themselves um what do I know from you know what's worked for me in the past mm -hmm. you know that that has helped me sort of like center and not do what I used to do which is like sit in front of a blank page and say why can't I write why can't I do anything why can't like no I need this structure yeah. Um, and that's fine. You know, so, so I think this is still hard to do on your own. I don't figuring out, yeah, what kind of resources that you need in order to um, do it in a way that like is actually doable for you as opposed to the way anybody else does it, right? Like, you know, I think there's lots of other ways that I check in with myself, right? Like I've, I've never been a big journaler. I had to write a ton for work. Writing was always really hard for me, but I got praised for it. So I did more and more and more of it. So when it came time for personal writing, right? Like I'm, you know, I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and I, and I took a really wonderful class through watercolor school out in San Francisco. I took a virtual class with them. And one of the things I learned how to do from, from this artist, Melanie, who was, who was leading it was a sort of like visual journal or daily diary. And so I would take 
two minutes. I did this for a month, right? And here's the thing. I did it for a month. It was great for that month. I haven't done it consistently since then. Also fine because it worked for what I needed it to work for. And I'm not going to beat myself up over not doing it consistently. I'm like more interested in resilience than I am in consistency um, for myself and for my clients. But, you know, I like would write down the day. I would take literally sometimes 30 seconds, sometimes two minutes. And I would just like try to center in myself, think about like what color or what shape was connected to the day. So I'd lean into like visual processing, which is something I'm really strong in. And I would make a mark on a page. And like, that would be my diary entry for the day. That would be my way of journaling. That would be my way of processing whatever emotion was like up and running in, in, in my mind. Um, I felt better because I didn't have to like sit, mm-hmm. <laughs> like wait to, for words to come when like really they were never going to come. And I was going to feel badly about the fact that I couldn't make them come. So, you know, I think that we want there to be ways. Like when it comes to structure, I think we so often want there to be like one way that is the right way to do things. Mm -hmm. And that's how we get to structure. And, and it's very hard to say, no, there's so many different structures and all of them are fine. The one that works for me is the one that's going to be the most fine for me. And I'll do some experimenting. I'll figure out what that is. I'll know that it might change based on whatever's going on in my life or what access to resources I have or what my processing modalities are looking like at any given moment in time. And I will have like an arsenal. I will have a toolkit of things that I know I can try. And also if nothing is working, I know where I can go to to sort of resource myself, which is a really different way of thinking that right, wrong, binary, yes, no, this is the only way to do it. This is the way that people like you do this. And, and it's a lot more complicated, but I think a lot more, um, honestly, like humane. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, meets, it meets you where you are, which is, I think, a really undervalued, a really undervalued thing. Exactly. And it sounds like a theme that I also keep hearing you coming back to is the importance of community. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that it really is like we to expect to expect that you can shift through life kind of isolated and and trying to juggle all this alone isn't really setting yourself up for success and and it doesn't help you access those resources on that kind of cyclical cyclical schedule because if you think that you can check in with a coach for like one time or one period of time and get all the resources you're ever going to need for the rest of your life. I mean, that's, that's a bad coach who's going to say yes. <laughs> exactly. But it's also like a lot of people, a lot of people think that, that yeah. like unknowingly they just, they just need a system. They just need a, yeah. 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 And so kind of uh, reinforcing community around yes. that is also huge. Yeah. Um, like what are, what are your supports and what do they look like in different arenas without the, without the, the sort of pressure to say, okay, well, this is the way it always needs to look. I will always draw on things from all of these areas, right? Like, no, it's a menu of like, what do I need now in this moment? Yeah. Sometimes all you need is dessert from the menu. Go for it. Right? <laughs> like sometimes all, sometimes you just want an appetizer. Sometimes you want the whole meal. Um. This is, this is, so true. Honestly, shout out back to the thing I talked about in the beginning. Being in a book club with you and the other wonderful people in our book club, it has been a huge community resource for me. And yeah. I would highly encourage anybody who is not connected to that kind of resource to look into a book club because we don't just talk about books. We talk about all this good stuff that comes out of sharing experiences like books together. We rarely um, talk about books. No, no I know. <laughs> Most of the time, it is one of us saying, let me tell you about the book I read and everyone else saying, let me tell you about my life because life is hard and big. Well, this this was so fantastic, Emily. I want to thank you so much. Like the, um, like you, you, like, it feels like gold just came out of your mouth. (laughs) I, I just think that everybody will end this episode thinking 
I need an Emily in my life because <laughs> everything was so full of like care and wisdom. And I really just, I love that about you. And I, I, uh, I think we could all benefit from that pers- like loving perspective in our lives. Um, so thank you for sharing that, uh, and sharing yourself. I have one question that I always ask everybody before the end of the episode. And then after that, I'm going to give you a chance to share any, um, resources or uh, ways that people can follow you after this question. So the question is, if you could go back and talk to younger Emily at any point and just share some wisdom or some encouragement, what, what would you say? Oh, I don't think she would hear it from me. I think that's uh, the hard thing, right? Like, but I think if, if she could hear it, mm-hmm. I would really make sure that she knows that other, that, that other people's opinions of her are none of her business. <laughs> none of her business. Okay. Um, mostly because, uh, you know, I, it's so hard to, to get to where you need to be when you're living your life based on what other people think of you. Yeah whether she would hear that, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I, yeah. I, think, I think also coming back to her and, and saying, um, uh, you don't have to do everything by yourself. You don't have to take it all on by yourself. You don't have to prove that you're worthy all by yourself. You don't have to, uh, gosh, just like, you don't have to hold everything that you're holding by mm. yourself. I think a lot of people can, can benefit from, from that kind of, yeah, just like acknowledgement that, that as much as, as much as we're, we're sort of coming up in a society designed to make us center ourselves in our, in our own individualism, that seeing myself as networked, right? Like seeing myself as somebody who has these ties, um, and to resources, to other people, to supports, to, um, all sorts of things. Yeah, I, it just would have been a different framework that mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, I wonder if it wouldn't have, yeah, mattered in some some small way. I think that's huge. And, and you know, maybe younger Emily would not have heard it once, but maybe younger Emily would have heard it if she had heard it once every six months, eventually. <laughs> who, who knows? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's like a nice thing to think about, but also you know, um, I also recognize that we don't get where we are without going through exactly what we've been through. Yeah. Yeah. No. How are you going to tell a caterpillar caterpillar? Like one day you're going to be a butterfly. Like that doesn't, that's like, what this doesn't mean anything today. I'm still (laughs) this. Um, yeah, I honestly, you're the first person who's ever answered that question that way. And it really made me think uh because you're right I wouldn't have heard any of the things I would have said to little Lucy either so <laughs> what, what I can what I can do is think about how I'm gonna parent right like that's where mm. that's where I think it comes in for me is I've got these two daughters um you know and and they will probably not hear things that I say because I think that's that's the way of mothers and daughters but mm-hmm. um uh you know what are the things that I'm that I'm gonna say to them yeah. Uh, how are they going to be different from the things that I heard? As yeah, kid? that's, that's huge. I love that. Um, thank you so much again. How can people follow you? And also, are there any resources that you want to shout out um, here as opposed to like, they can follow you obviously and find those resources? Sure. Well, well sure. So um, my, my business <laughs> is Avid Gaze um, Coaching and Consulting. And that's at avidgaze.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a link there to sort of like social media stuff. And I think what I'm going to do, if it's okay with you, is just put a couple of links together. Um, people that I have worked with, people that I really admire, people who are much smarter than I am in terms <laughs> of um, uh, talking about some of the the sort of ins and outs of of ADHD that you can put in the show notes, but, but sort of in terms of anyone who wants to think about sort of like neurodiversity for the first time, I'd really recommend checking out writings by Nick Walker, um, who has a great website um, called Neuroqueer that goes into a whole list of definitions around the neurodiversity paradigm, neurodiversity movements, what it means to reframe 
the way that you're thinking with this as, as a sort of foundation. Excellent. I love it. Thank you so much again. Yeah. And yeah, we will definitely share those links in our show notes as well. Great. Thank you, Lucy, for having me. You're a, you're a, you're a source of inspiration in my life as well. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. (laughs) Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to Midlife Plot Twists. Be sure to hit subscribe and check back monthly for each new episode. Since monthly podcasts don't automatically download, you can also follow me on Instagram at Lucy Baber and Facebook at Lucy Baber Photography to be the first to know when each new episode is released.